Bold City Longsword presents the Swords and Stereo Podcast. Welcome to Swords and Stereo. I'm Lucas DeBlasi, and today uh, I'm here with Dr. Bill Ernohazi. Dr. Bill helps teach uh, at our school, Bold City Longsword. He's an emergency medical specialist, a Navy veteran, recognized as an instructor of the Acelahara Effectual under Christian Tobler, and uh, he teaches 14th and 15th century German medieval combat focused on uh, armored combat. So wel- welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bill. Thank you, thank you. It's good to be here. Let's start with, uh, I guess, a little bit of your history. So where, where are your roots and where has that led you? Oh, okay, sure. Well, I grew up in North, North Central California, which in the 1960s, there wasn't really much of any swords at all, unless you watched Errol Flynn. Fortunately, my father was a Hungarian emigrant whom had, before the Second World War, had the honor of studying um, with the Hungarian Olympic fencing team. So he was well-versed in Hungarian saber and frustrated that there was no place that he could take me to learn it. So we spent many afternoons when nothing else was calling us on a weekend uh, with him patiently, patiently, patiently having me take guard, respond, whack on the head because I didn't respond (laughs) fast enough. How old were you when that started? Uh, 12. And by high school, I was actually getting to where I didn't get whacked much, but there really wasn't any room in the living room to you know, really roll into actual exchanges. I mean, we didn't have an Adams Family type house. But I had the fortune to go to undergraduate at the University of San Francisco. It turns out that the person teaching just the plain old introductory PE courses there for fencing was a gentleman named Dr. William O'Brien. And he was teaching those essentially pro bono. Because when he wasn't teaching pro bono at the University of San Francisco, he was the master of the Sal at Letterman Army Fencing Club in the Presidio and the Western Regional Olympic coach for the United States. So this was a tremendous exposure that you just can't even, uh, you fall into that kind of luck, right? Yeah, that's, that's some high caliber uh, beginnings. <laughs> Further, um, I did have the good fortune for about eight months uh, when I was on naval orders back to the Oakland area to have found and taken Aikido at Aikido of San Leandro under Pat Hendricks Sensei, another extraordinary martial artist, well-grounded in her tradition. And that too was the kind of incalculable good luck you just, you can't purchase that. That comes to you and when it happens, it's a gift. Yeah, I, I, see, uh, I see that Aikido influence come up uh, out while you're teaching, what what the what led you down this uh, the HEMA path, uh, the Western martial arts path? More good luck. Yeah. <laughs> so 
at the time I was an undergraduate and for the time before I got into medical school was the heyday of the Renaissance Pleasure Fair in Marin County, the legendary fair that was held in Black Point Forest, one of the two oldest fairs in the country, and one that was very, very focused on living history. I was there uh, with a games booth, but we were teaching fencing, the kind of fencing where you would give 20 minutes of lessons to people who just wanted to put on a mask and a half class drawn and wave the swords around and feel like they were doing something renaissance. And, and that was fine. That was fine. But in the after hours, those of us who had an interest in swords got together and looked at the very few, very few resources that were available to people back then to look at how uh, fighting was actually conducted in that age. At about that time, we only really had mimeographed copies of Degrassi, Saviolo, and George Silver. Oh, wow. <laughs> no way, shape, or form redacted. They were not compiled. They were not put in contemporary English. They were not illustrated. They were straight mimeographic copies. Part of a massive amount of work done by an extraordinary figure, probably the great-grandfather of HEMA and WMA in the United States, Patre Pugliese. Pugliese was a dance teacher, of all things. But as he was looking for manuals of dance in the libraries of Europe, he would come occasionally across a manual of martial arts. And he could see the similarities. And since he had permit to do mimeographs, anyway, he would mimeograph the things he could find and make them available to people who had some interest in this. Very cool. This is really part of Generation Zero for HEMA and the Western martial arts in contemporary culture. Because some of us didn't go to medical school from Renaissance Fair. Some okay. of us actually went and became historians. Yeah. And those historians took summers and sabbaticals and went to Europe and found that there was an extraordinary treasure trove of manuals of fight dating back to perhaps 1250, the 133 manuscript at the Royal Armories of Leeds, and that these were not hidden. They had just been ignored, in some cases, for hundreds of years. This is so far back that we used Usenet. I'm dating myself. <laughs> so when Rapier L started to light up with people jumping onto the email mailing list and say, you'll never believe what I found. Oh, my um, God. It blew up. Yeah. That's I have like had the pleasure. real life uh, Indiana Jones kind of stuff. Absolutely. I've had the pleasure to go from only being able to guess what two Italians and a grumpy Englishman meant to helping research and helping in some small little way crowdfund translations and learning from people who had decided to make this 
their life's study in an extraordinary number of events all across the United States. Yeah, Again, more good luck, right? I didn't yeah. choose to be born here, but I have the honor to be a small part of a generation of geeky martial artists who have resuscitated martial traditions that were almost totally gone. That's not nothing. No, that's, uh, you know, uh, we modern Himaists, Western martial artists, we're, we're positively spoiled now with the, you know, Wichtenhauer and all the PDFs that you can find readily. And, you know, it's not just Wichtenhauer, it's not just the PDFs. Researchers who have dedicated their lives to unpacking this stuff. Stefan Hand in Australia, Christian Tobler, Guy Windsor. Yeah. Greg Mele with the Chicago Swordplay Guild. Uh, just this, this panoply of researchers, some of whom I have the honor now to count as friends. That, that is the piece that really, honestly, is maybe. That's the piece I think that it is hard to appreciate if you didn't live in a world where Errol Flynn was the best swordsman you thought you'd ever see. <laughs> yeah, you're you're you're, you're living it. Amazing <clears throat> journey, and I'm so happy to be a part of it. Well, to uh, to to navigate all of that, you know, you you had the opportunities, but it sounded like you navigated it, uh, you know, you know, with integrity, right? You uh, you don't you don't accrue relationships being an asshole. <laughs> you want to learn. You want to learn because learning this delights you. You want yes. to do these things not because, oh gosh, this will make me able to beat other people in tournaments, or gosh, this will help me on the streets be, be tougher and more butch. You learn this because it is new. It is amazing that it has come back to us. It is amazing and wonderful. And if you can approach your learning like that, including the piece that says, I may know a ton of stuff, but this researcher has found out things we never guessed. Teach me. Yeah. If you can come to the art like that, every time you enter the practice hall, every time you interact on a web group, every time you go to a seminar, then people are going to want to have you around because you are coming to the art with a kind of heart and the kind of joy that makes you the best kind of partner to train with. Somebody who will bring everything they've got when it's time to, not to crush you, but to test drive what they know. Yes. You know, ex expressing your yourself through the art, kind of what I'm hearing. You're, you know, uh, your, your spirit, your martial spirit. I guess, I guess you just define martial spirit, you know. <laughs> The funny thing is, at a certain point, I think it's only martial because the application. Right. Yeah. The art is the art is the art. Now, Lichtenauer won't say it in so many terms. Neither will Fiore, but both our proto-masters, both our tradition founders, Italian and German, were certain 
that it was only people of good spirit, conduct, bearing, integrity, to use the word you used, who should be taught. Yeah. Not bullies, not creeps, not brigands. As we move into a time where we are grappling in all aspects of contemporary society with systematic injustices, with bullying, with people trying to lord it over other people, I think every responsible martial artist in the Western traditions has to step back and remember that our fathers, our forebearers were quite clear. The art is not to bully people. The art is not for people who will not bear themselves responsibly, justly, bravely, mercifully. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I started in a traditional karate background and, uh, you know, being able to punch hard. Uh, I didn't get a lot of mileage out of that, but the but the discipline and the uh, even as, as weird as it sounds, the the lessons of kindness and uh, and, and t- integrity, you know, those those are the things that really stuck with me. But you see, it's really not weird at all. It <laughs> is totally sensible once you come to the art and you learn it in a place where the entirety of the art matters, the underpinnings, the responsibility. Yes, the virtues, as well as the techniques. If anything, it's a sad commentary on what we have all let contemporary culture become, that it seems weird. Right. So it's funny that that, uh, that we went down this road. I've I've been corrected a couple times by my uh, beautiful significant other, you know, in a similar fashion. You know, know, it's not weird. The rest, (laughs) everything else is weird that what you're doing is appropriate. No lie detected. <laughs> so, uh, you you came up through this uh, this this bounty, you know, uh, luck luck or otherwise situation. You accrued a lot of experience and a lot of uh, lessons learned, right? So the- I, I think I think the word you may be grappling with is a very medieval, very chivalric word, renowned. Yeah, yeah. Not fame but renown look that person there practices with integrity and he has skill and he is as merciful as he is brave that person is worth hanging out with right and more that's what you're looking for and it's again renown now is used for so much less than it should be yeah yeah, I, I would tend to agree. So re- renown, I know that that's uh, afforded you the opportunity to go to some pretty amazing events. Uh, you know, the uh, Tournament of the White Swan in Verona. Uh, I know you've you've been to and taught at uh, at WMA. Um, WMAW typically. We we try not to turn it into a word. It's a weekend. Give it all four letters. Okay, W M A W. Which, for some of you listening who may not have been exposed to it, is held every other year at the Decoven Center um, near um, Racine. It is perhaps the preeminent international 
sword camp slash retreat slash get together slash seminar set for the Western martial arts, certainly in the North American continent. Yeah. Again, by Greg Melee and the folk of Chicago Swordplay Guild, but always looking for the finest instructors and bringing them in. Uh, certainly, I, I can look to their recognizing what I had achieved so far and asking me to teach certain things as a major hallmark. This is the kind of place where you can meet people like Sean Hayes and Eugene, where you can meet, well, everybody I've already named. I mean, I've passed a certain point. If you go to the internet and you look at anybody who has full on, full dress, international renown, these are the people who you can meet and train with and get to know and learn from. And the fact that these people think me worthy to teach among them, wow. Just, <laughs> just drop the mic. Wow. Okay? It's that renown that brought Christian Tobler to basically stop me at somebody's wedding we were attending and said, Bill, why aren't you teaching? It's that kind of renown which led other people to sponsor my application and to recommend me and to speak well of me and gave me the opportunity to fight in deeds of arm, like the one held at Western Martial Arts Weekend, like the one in Verona held every couple of years, the Torneo de Sicco Bianco, the Tourney of the White Swan. Fabulous events where it really is people striving to test their art, to test you with no anger or bitterness at the end of it, and as close to a true chivalric deed of arms experience as can possibly be had. There is nothing like the combination of panache and the weight of the armor, the visceral experience of being in knightly combat and the caliber of those who are testing your art. Nothing like it anywhere. And I am very, very fortune favored to have had those opportunities. And <laughs> getting, getting goosebumps. <laughs> well, good. That's two of us. Right. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> I know we've, we've talked about this before, um, but not on a podcast. Um, if somebody was to uh, walk the path, and I know you have some advice for them. Uh, we talked about the precepts that you have for somebody walking the path from beginner up to teaching. So what what it, what are the what are the things that people should strive for? What are the milestones and the and and the you know the the actions they should take if if they want to walk a path and end up you know doing honor to their art. Uh, and, and becoming a, a teacher, an instructor. Okay, so presuming your foundation is sound, presuming that you're coming to the Western martial arts, to HEMA, and you want to do this with honor, with beauty, 
with courage, with ferocity, but also with gentility of spirit and courtesy and, and decent manners and treating other people with respect. Assuming the foundation is good, right? Yeah. First, get gooder. If you're going to teach, <laughs> you've got to have a thorough, drenching understanding of the art you're going to teach. Because it is possible for professional teachers to teach out of discipline, so to speak, to use the discipline skills of teaching and lesson plans provided by other people who are drenched in their art and do a competent job of teaching. This is not at all impossible. But in the Western martial arts, there aren't many curricula like that that will carry you along. And in the training hall in the South, there is an aspect of coaching which comes along with this. And yeah. if you do not understand the art from the inside out well enough to see somebody, and even if it's just for your eye to stop and say, why isn't that working? Even if you don't have the answer that instant, you yeah. need to be able to recognize, say, why isn't that working? Okay, show me that again. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's the humility to say, let's all think about this. When I do this, but boom, 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 it's working. When you do that, it's not working. So what's different? Let's look at it together. Let's learn. Yeah. Or the instant ability to say, ah, I see your elbow, you're cocking it out. Or, okay, this drill isn't working because the points aren't really bringing a threat. As you get closer, you're cheating up the drill a little and the points are kind of drifting off. So there's nothing to respond to. Have you heard me say that before? Yeah, absolutely. If not uh, okay. verbatim, very, uh, very close. Okay. <laughs> you must be drenched in your art. The second thing you've got to do is you've got to get gooder at teaching. I alluded to this a couple of minutes ago, and I'll come back to it. Teaching is not just something that people who are smart at something do naturally. Teaching is an art and a science and a discipline all in itself. Understanding how your students learn. Understand how much attention students could bring to any given endeavor. Understanding how to plan how much information do I want to give. In the time I know before I lose them and they start doing other things. Yeah. How do I convey that given the people I'm talking to? What do I do with the person who's there for their own reasons and you know, there's ego bumping on ego? How do I address that without it turning into an ego fest in the cell, which can be at best corrosive, at worst can be downright dangerous during drills? Yes. All of those things are part and parcel of the art and science and discipline of teaching. So if you don't have that as part of your other arts, your other things that you do in your life, and I mean formal training, get some. Start looking at teaching 
classes. Start looking at online teaching resources. Look at coaching resources because coaching and teaching are not precisely the same thing, but they sit together in the same pew of the church. Yeah, I've, I've, I've felt so that. So you will, uh, you, will you will get some useful things both ways. And everything you learn helps you learn more. Absolutely. Okay. The, 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 the coaching teaching divide something that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm entering into both. Uh, uh, and uh, when I was laid up with, uh, after, after having knee surgery, um, I tried sitting on the side and, and coaching and uh, went to a tournament, didn't compete, stood in somebody's corner. And that was a, that was a huge eye opener, the, the learning curve for that. There's almost certainly not enough time in our interview to dive down that rabbit hole. So I'm just, I'm just going to throw this out there for people to think about and, you know, maybe email me or yeah. find an event later and argue with me or whatever. <laughs> Teaching is where you say, this is what happens when you blank. This is what is when blank. Coaching is you are doing blank when you try to do this. The difference is subtle, but it's important. One is based on the knowledge and the structured body of information that transmits the art. And one other, the other is how you do that. So you see, I think there's no significant argument. They're not quite the same thing, but they are very, very close. Yeah. Third, travel. A little hard to do in the age of the Rona. I understand that. <laughs> yeah. But, but here's the thing. If you go to a club, let's say it's a big club in a major urban center, and you're lucky enough to have four solid instructors and drill leaders and 20 people. Your universe is 24. Yeah. Okay. You can watch YouTubes. And if you're lucky, your teaching cadre can tell you these people have good YouTubes. These other people you're not going to get the information you'd like to get. They perhaps aren't worth your time right now. Maybe come back later and look at them when you've got more on board. Right? Right. But there is still in your learning universe, there's 24 people. And they're all learning from each other. Which means every good thing is going to get to everybody. But every bad habit and every misinterpretation or let's say perhaps less effective interpretation of how something is done is going to get to everybody really quickly. Yes. Yeah. We've experienced that in the club. Uh, Matt, Matt and I talked about that at length <laughs> in another podcast. Until you get out and travel, go to seminars, go to tournaments, go to events and test drive your art, your understanding of the art, against other people you you have this stunted ground in which you're trying to grow 
and you're not getting fertilizer and you're getting the occasional breeze instead of wind and water and rain and good nutrients. Even if you have brilliant teachers. Because even the best of us can have interpretations that turn out over time not to be the best one. You've got to get out. You've got to travel. You've got to meet a wide range of other practitioners, other minds, other viewpoints on the art that gives you a chance to test your thinking as well as your practical ability to make the hit against somebody trained in different ways who with a right good will and a good heart still doesn't want you to get the hit. Right. Yeah, the, the nature of a, of a pressure testing against un, unknown people, right? Yep. The next thing I do recommend really is almost relies on travel in the vast majority of cases. And it sounds funny when we put it this way, but I'm going to say it and then like a good medievalist, we're going to gloss it. <laughs> okay. All right. If I say you must seek external validation, there are a ton of people listening to this whom from their own life experiences with counseling and with various philosophical engagements or for that matter, internal martial arts from some traditions will say, well, yeah, but you need to believe in yourself. You don't need external validation. Yes, you need to believe in yourself, but perhaps the best phrase for what I'm trying to reach for is that it is impossible, I think, to exercise clear-sighted discernment. Yes. This is almost never used in contemporary English now. When it is used, it tends to be used by structural theologians and moral theologians in high church Christian teaching, where they're talking about the ability to discern and to tell whether or not something that's happening to you is valid and authentic, or whether yeah. it's an illusion, a delusion, or in you know, certain religious terms, actually enemy action, something malignant trying to get you to do one thing so you don't do another. Yeah. And just as in monastic traditions, whether Eastern or Western, having experts who've been further down the road than you are help you with what is an ego-driven mistake What's a natural misinterpretation and what might actually, okay, that might be a valid insight that nobody's really given much thought to. But you can't do that from inside your own bucket. Right. Remember yeah. what I said a little while ago that the, if, if you're in a great urban center, your teaching universe is 24. Yeah. But when you're trying to figure out how well you grasp the art, your teaching universe is one. Yeah. So you're inside your skull. You're telling yourself, this must make sense because. And there is no better way to make a mistake than to dig in there and double down on this must be like this because. Right. That will screw you every time. <laughs> 
Yeah, your, so, your, your, your own skull is the ultimate echo chamber. Yeah, you need external help from people who've been further down the road than you have to help you check ride and check some and think about your thinking and think about how your applications do or do not work. Yeah. You, you ju I just do not think you, I, I, no, I do not think you can do that on your own. We're all in this together. Yeah. Yeah, I, I never looked at it that way. That's, uh, that's actually, you know. So we, the we, next thing, the next thing you gotta do, <clears throat> what's you gotta that? teach. <laughs> at some point, at some point, you gotta gather your courage and you got to gather what you know, and you've got to gather what you've learned about teaching, and ideally in a supportive environment of people who, again, who've been further down the road than you are, no more. You got to teach. Yeah. You got to teach because that too requires practice. You teach, you learn from how the class went well. You are honest with yourself and double plus learn when the class didn't go the way you expected it to. Why not? And was that an opportunity or simply a mistake? What do you do about it the next time something like that comes up? And then again, your teachers, the people who've been further down that road than you, your coaches, your experts, giving you feedback. Okay? Yeah. And I want to underline this a little bit. They're giving you feedback. Doesn't necessarily mean that any of us, any of us has the absolute definitive last word. Listen. Listen to the feedback. Listen carefully to it. If four or five people give you the same feedback, they're probably all seeing the same thing. Yeah, the higher probability that it's true. <laughs> yeah, if one person says one thing and two people say they saw something else, then you want to think some more. Nothing on gospel. Everything yeah. with respect. Uh, I like that. <laughs> Nothing on gospel. Everything with respect. And once you've done all that... Lather, rinse, repeat, because I guarantee you are not the perfect master of the art. There's still more to learn. Yeah. There's still more to engage yourself in. There's still ways to be better as a teacher. There are still challenges that you can seek to test your, at that point, not just your understanding of the art, but your life in the art. How good is that doing? And you know, if you're having a hard time, because we all are right now, that's okay, too. That's okay, too. Because adversity, by its very definition, is part of martial arts and practices. Absolutely. Yeah. So you deal with adversity. You still want to be the victor at the end of it. And sometimes that means you get a training injury, you slow down, and you focus on the coaching game. Don't try and push yourself. 
if you're having a stuck place kind of stalled, your fighting's only going so-so, don't bring two people into the fight, right? Tell, tell the little voice in the back of your head, hush. Oh, your own self bring, bring your... Yeah, uh, don't, yeah okay. <laughs> don't, bring, don't bring your pet head weasel into the ring with you. Yeah, monkey mind. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, th this is... Two uh, are important. So yeah, this is, this is ultimately a spiral. Okay? Yeah. Because ideally, you're getting better and you're lifting up the quality of what you bring to your life in the art. But it is a spiral. You're going to come around to what looks like the same view. Even as you go up the mountain, you go around the mountain, you're going to see much the same view. Okay? <laughs> and, that's, and that's okay. But, uh, but every, every trip around, your, your, your knowledge and understanding you know, has the high potential to compound itself because of the, you know, the, this cyclical nature. If you, okay. I can see if you really follow this model, you're, you're optimizing for growth, you know? Yeah. And what happens if you're one, your way around the mountain and the ground gives out and you slide down 150, 200, 500 feet, <laughs> dust yourself off, work yourself back, start walking again. Yeah. That's okay. You've learned one place not to, uh, not to tread heavy. And, you know, maybe it, maybe it isn't even learning. Maybe it's just what is. You know, um, sometimes if everything in our life has a reason, I suspect in many cases it's because somebody sat with something that just happened and helped it find a reason. Like uh, rationalizing? Uh... No, 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 no. Okay? Yeah. Some of you listening know I had a very bad cancer a few years ago. I would like to believe that I didn't deserve it. <laughs> so what possible lesson can there have been in that? I really don't think that I was given cancer to teach me a thing. Yeah. But because it did happen, I did learn some things. So that's what I mean by something happened and then I helped it make sense. Right. Not rationalizing, because that's just explaining away what happened. Being open and saying, well, that sucks. Now what? Right. And you know, one of the nice things about competition HEMA is the implicit lesson that you don't lose with one and only one strike. Yes, that's an artifice of competition and gaming. Best of three, best of five. Okay? Yeah. But there's also a very nice, quiet truth there. Adversity doesn't have to be the end of the story. The next passage is right around the corner. Just one flag of the judges in front. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you 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 have you have the opportunity to attend to what went wrong if something went wrong, or even to just say, "Okay, that happened." Yeah, and that may even be the better strategy sometimes. But people who are listening now are clutching their chests and saying, "Oh God, this has turned woo woo." 
Um, <laughs> let's let's push forward. Yeah, yeah. I like this. I like this model a lot. Like like you said, it's it's a spiral. It compounds on itself. It's it's open ended in a sense. When you're teaching at the Sal, how how do you express these precepts? You know, you you have a, an hour long class. What what comes out in in those classes? Uh, from from this model, the model informs and helps set the tone and gives me tools to go through the classes. It might be, however, fair to say that in being good at my art, I know that there is an art to teach, and it's very complex. In learning to teach well, I've learned that you can't just throw everything like a fire hydrant; it doesn't stick. Yeah. Knowledge is well imparted when it has structure. When you have a plan, even if the student doesn't necessarily see it, because you can put the pieces out there in a pattern that is most likely to stick and each piece to help the other piece build. Yeah. So to steal from a military model for the moment, yes, martial studies, we can do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Grand strategy, the global strategic super uber goal. Yeah. Is everybody who comes to a class I'm teaching gets a chance to be exposed to and once again decide each and every time do I, is this art a good place for me to spend my time in my life? Because there's a heck of a lot to learn here. And if they want to learn it, great. If they don't, okay. If they say, wow, this is really interesting and intricate, but maybe that's not where I want to be, that's okay too. So that's the grand strategy. Then there is, how do you bring that down into just plain strategy? And this is where you say, okay, the art's big. I know I'm teaching for 10, 12, 14, 16, 18 weeks. If we use a structured approach, we can tackle this in pieces, and each piece will build on each other, and, you know, happily, in both the Italian and the German traditions, there are several very good structured books that help teach how to go about doing this. And that is really nice because you can use the chapter or the half chapter you can say okay i want to cover these pieces from there but maybe i'm going to use a different drill or something again be good at your art but you know okay these are my goals and you build those goals knowing and now we start to move into tactics i know that realistically about an hour at a time is as much attention as most people can give I know that most people will probably take three, maybe four major things away from any given class. I know that because this is a physical art, they've got to be given a chance to feel it in some fashion because class notes aren't going to help them feel it. Right, yeah. So those tactics help inform how I take the strategy, which is to use this organized body of knowledge found in this text, because this text works really well. Mm -hmm. And I start organizing my lessons around that. 
we're going to cover either the whole chapter or the half chapter on this Meister, how this master technique in the German tradition, for example. Right. And depending upon what I know about the intricacy of that, that might be two classes if it's an introductory affair. If it's an intensive, um, we can certainly do the whole chapter or we can come back to it and say, okay, show me how you're doing it today and then start deconstructing what they could do to help that be better. And then saddle orders are the fussy little things that, that actually say, we're going to he go here and do this like this today. And that involves a sense of, I want to teach this piece. I only want them to get, if they get more than three, that's fine. But I have three key goals I need them to at least comprehend and, and have a grasp on. But maybe depending upon the composition of the class, the drill I wanted isn't quite going to get us there. The three principal things are the objective we're going to take today. And we can take any number of roads to get there and do that based on my knowledge of the art, my knowledge of teaching, my knowledge of the students, my experience with similar situations. So I guess the, you know, the, the, the grand strategy is the, the overall expression of the art and imparting information. It is the art. Yeah. Okay. You come, my students come in the door. My assumption is they want to do this thing of ours. And if they don't, we need them to help them not waste their time and money <laughs> in an efficient and humane fashion. Yes. But if they really want what we're doing here, and, and let me just say this in the underlying way if they really want what we're doing here, then we want them to recognize it, recognize the pieces in themselves that resonate with that, and then build on that. This again gets back to the fundamentals that Fiore, that Lichtenauer, that other masters of this art insisted on. We're not here to teach bullies. We're not here to teach people how to thug other people. We're not here to teach 15 techniques, just kill somebody and laugh about it. This is for men and women with courage, but also with compassion and gentility and the desire to help and defend others, as well as the desire to do this kind of body exaltation, right? That, that flow state that some of you listening to this will have had from time to time, and many of you may have heard of where it literally feels like for this passage, this moment, I could literally drop the sword and it would bounce on the ground and fly up point first and it would still hit my opponent in the chest. <laughs> that, that total sense that you and the universe and the person you're working with, everybody is clicking and it's flow. Yeah. Okay. Pure, pure expression. And that is a legitimate part of what we are doing in the martial art. Yeah, it's I, not I, the only game in town. It's I, not I, the only piece of the puzzle. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I, I know I, I strive for that flow state. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big reason I'm, I've been doing martial arts for so long. To, to get to, not, not necessarily exhausted, but that's, that's where it seems to happen the most for me. Deep in training, 
physically exhausted all the all the all the static you know uh, erodes from my mind and and i'm in it and it's a it's a good place to be this moment yes present tense <laughs> yeah it's, that's beautiful so we, we've covered the precepts we've covered um, a little bit on how you express those in uh in the south with all of the fortunate situations you've been in and the, and the experienced teachers, what, what kind of common threads can you draw from teacher to teacher? You know, they were all accomplished. They were all skilled. What, what's some things that they all did, you know, the, the, the common thread between. <sighs> I, I can cut this several ways. One common thread is that they really love the art as they understand it and they want to understand it better and practice it better. What get, flows from that naturally is get gooder. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> and that is a real, there is this assumption that once you have achieved mastery, whether that's by popular acclaim or a board of examiners putting a, a black belt on you or something, that that's the pinnacle. All the best teachers and exemplars I know have seen any accolade as a roadmark and said, okay, now where can we go from here? Where can we go from here? Get gooder. The other thread that really is very, very close to that is, sorry, Stephen Barnes, I'm stealing from you here. <laughs> Teach me, Sifu. <laughs> Stephen Barnes, the noted science fiction and martial arts author, talks about one of his personal exemplars yeah. who is an absolute past master of the art in his branch. Seeing a acquaintance do something really quick, really elegant, really stop a fight and done. Yeah. Without excess brutality, but stopping it. And this exemplar turning to that acquaintance saying, teach me Seifu. That is so important. All the best teachers I know, all the exemplars I know are constantly talking with each other, checking things against each other's store of knowledge, wisdom, and experience. When we travel again, they'll test it, steel to steel again, not for dominance games, not for, you know, who's top of the wall, but who's got the best insight about this piece of the grand puzzle, which is the art as we understand it today. And how can we learn from each other yeah it's like, it's like we talked about earlier don't don't get trapped in your in your own echo chamber or your club's echo chamber really seek see, seek those outside perspectives well if i understand that it's because my masters and my exemplars didn't just tell me they showed me they lived it yeah and it kind of a half thought, but it, it kind of reminds me of uh, like the three jewels in, uh, in in Buddhism. You know, you have your Buddha, Sangha, Dharma, you have your ideal to strive for, you have the teachings, uh, and you have your community. So when you when you apply apply that to other things, I kind of see threads of that coming through with this model. You know, you have your you have your teachings, you have your community of peers, and you have your your community of other other experts, and you have these like ideals these exemplars to strive for and, and to even be uh you know momentarily in, in your time get 
gooder. Okay. And then somebody will tell you eventually that, Hey, you're an exemplar to them. Yeah. And then you smile and you chuckle a little and you thank them. And then you turn back around and get gooder. Right. (laughs) If you see the Buddha in the street. You know, I don't like that particular saying particularly. If we're going to stick with that thematic tense, what do you do before enlightenment? Chop wood, carry water. Right, yes. What do you do after enlightenment? (laughs) Chop wood, carry water. Water. Yep. So there's common threads from your teachers. Um, What what kind of common threads have you seen on the other side? Uh, bad advice or missteps that are commonly made the toughness myth toughness myth in general yeah you got to train through pain which okay now as a physician i'm all about that because if you're more injured when you come to my colleagues they can do more things and build the insurance company and and get another porsche (laughs) do that pain is the body's way of telling you, hey, this ain't good. Yeah. There may be times and places where endurance for a greater good is an absolutely vital virtue. But I promise you, training in the cell just to prove to somebody else that you can gut it out is not that place. Toughness. The only one who really matters is the tough guy who can beat up everybody at swordfish or who can beat the hell out of everybody at surfo you may for a time have a body and have a small but useful toolbox that will allow you to batter your way through everybody but it is in the nature of things that sooner or later your body will fail you and when your body fails you that toolbox won't worth anymore and then if you're real lucky You get out of the martial arts before all those people who still have their toolboxes come to repay you for your lack of courtesy and your brutality. Yeah. The whole notion that we have got to be, it's a false toughness that comes from the notion that you've got to win rather than defense. I really don't think that it is an accident that by the time at least in europe that we have moved into the last manuals before gunpowder makes close quarter combat a dubious proposition yeah everybody's talking about the art of defense i do not think that it is an accident or coincidence that chinese swordsmen at the height of their skill level talk about the perfection of their art and nobody getting hit subduing an enemy without actually injuring them all the way up to oh sensei in aikido yeah here by aikido um exposure is showing itself the victory is in stopping fighting if you can do that with a kind word before anybody draws anything then everybody goes home. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes all the choices become bad ones. And then your art and your training allow you to have the least bad outcome for you and the people involved in your life because you didn't set out to do something wicked and murderous that day. You, you didn't set out to do that. So 
you don't need to be the one who lays down, but starting and insisting and making, beating people, beating people up, crushing people, winning, win, 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 win. What's your one loss ratio? I think that is the most corrosive aspect of the whole toughness myth. Yeah. One I would be happy to see leave contemporary culture for approximately ever. <laughs> yeah. It resonates with me because, you know, like going back to my, my karate roots, that, that, that was something that they uh, impressed on all of the students. You know, this is that, 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 I guess that, that, yeah, not, not those, not your words, whatever the words they use, but that toughness mentality, that's, that's not the way to go. It's not, uh, it's not effective. It's not integrous. My, my sensei back then would threaten to kick kids out if he, heard that they were fighting or <laughs> using their uh, their skills they're accruing for the wrong reasons. It was a great conversation, Dr. Bill. It really was delightful. I'm, I'm glad you asked me to come and uh, be a part of this. Well, you're you're a you're a part of our uh, our little tribe here down in Jacksonville, so I'm 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 grateful to have you a part of it. This is uh, it's really great. It's been delightful. Thank <laughs> you very much again. Thank you, Dr. Bill. Good night. All right. This episode of Swords and Stereo was produced by Final Plank Media Productions. Theme song for Swords and Stereo is Thunderer by Professor Agma. Check him out, too. To find out more about Bold City Longsword, visit their website at jacksonvillehema.com. To find more Final Plank Media produced podcasts, visit finalplank.com or visit us at Final Plank on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.